Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council and is a member of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. I just blowed in and I got them Dust Bowl blues. I just blowed in and I got them Dust Bowl blues. In 1936, the federal government released a film. They called it a documentary, but it was mostly propaganda. Many would argue that its cause was noble rather than sinister, but others, as we'll see, would violently disagree. I guess you've heard about every kind of blues. But when the dust gets high, you can't even see the sky. That's Woody Guthrie, who else when you think about it, singing Dust Bowl Blues. And to understand why the federal government got into the propaganda film business, you first need to understand the Dust Bowl and what Woody means when he sings, but when the dust gets high, you can't even see the sky. The podcast is Archiver. The episode, Dust Bowl the Movie, Me. I'm your host, Sam Zeff. Seen the wind so high that it blowed my fences down. Buried my tractor six feet underground. I don't think it has ever been completely told the story of the dust storms. I don't think people have any idea today what it was like. It was a, it was something very very unusual. Never had happened before, and never since. Before we get to the movie, I want you to understand what life was like for Kansans who lived through the Dust Bowl. To find those voices, we search deep into the oral history collection at the Kansas Historical Society. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the dust storms. Uh, They did not blow in. There was no wind. It was quiet as could be, still. And down the street came this great big, just rolled in like a wheel. Another thing, the rabbits, there was a lot of them suffocated right in their little, I don't know what you'd call it, a hood or whatever. Uh, Just suffocated right in there, right where they sat there from that dust. And then, of course, the one first big one we ever saw, we not only turned our lights on, but we couldn't even see the light on our own front porch. By the time it got over as far as our place, we couldn't see the neighbors. We couldn't see our own front porch light. And it was frightening. You thought uh, at first that you'd gotten in on the last day in the world. And everybody, I think, felt that way. Our youngest child was only about two years old. And at night, I would wet one of the crib sheets and put it over the crib so he could breathe. I read so much today about the pollution, the air pollution. And I just wonder, if the pollution we had from that dust wasn't worse, or as bad at least, as the pollution we have today. It's rough but we learned to accept our lot in life and look for better times.
As you can hear, life was rough for everyone during the Dust Bowl. Now, the Department of Agriculture decided that much of the Dust Bowl was the fault of bad farming practices, and it wanted them stopped. To do that, they needed farmers to buy into new programs and Congress to pay for them. And that's where the plow that broke the plains come in. While paid for by the federal government, it was the brainchild of first-time director Per Lorenz. Parts of it were shot in Kansas, and the lush score, as much a character in the film as the land, was composed by Virgil Thompson, who was born in Kansas City. Film was becoming the most powerful media at the time, and Washington was going to use it to change hearts and minds. The grasslands, a treeless, windswept continent of grass, stretching from the broad Texas panhandle up through the mountain reaches of Montana to the Canadian border, a country of high winds and sun, high winds and sun, without rivers, without streams, with little rain. Now, the government wanted to show that there are good ways to use the land and bad ways. The film shows cattle and cowboys using the vast grasslands of the plains to raise beef. But suddenly the music changes. The visuals go from the natural beauty of the plains to farmers cultivating it. You see plows breaking the plains. It's ominous. The first fence. Progress came to the plains. Archiver historian Virgil Dean joins me now. So the plow that broke the plains... Would it have been shown in movie theaters? Would it be part of like a double feature? Or how would that film have been distributed by the government? Yeah, I, th- I think it was, I think they probably intended to have it uh, at a pretty, wi- with a pretty wide release. Uh, and it certainly was of that quality. As it turned out, from what I understand, it was a fairly limited, it was more of a, used in more educational purposes uh, with smaller groups and, and uh, pretty quickly taken off of the, uh, out of circulation because of some of the controversy it created. So why the film? Why did the government decide that it needed to produce this documentary? And and, and who produced it within it was, the government? Yeah, it was produced by the uh, Resettlement Administration. Tell which me about was, that. I've never yeah. heard of that. That's one of those uh, New Deal government ag- agencies yeah. that you don't hear much about. New Deal agency uh, that was created in 1935 uh, to address some of the problems throughout the country with in rural areas in particular. Uh, in the South and particularly in the West. And uh, the idea was to help people relocate if they were in an area of marginal uh, productive, uh, where the land was marginally productive. And, of course, that fit the Dust Bowl area. So they became active in that area in Kansas, uh, the the area that's most impacted by it. Uh, from a long-term standpoint, was Morton County, where we now have the Cimarron National Grassland because of the land they set aside as, and, and took out of production uh, for, that, uh, for that purpose. But they, the idea was to settle people, resettle farmers uh, in uh, lands that were on, you know, kind of model farms that would be, uh, allow them to have a more productive existence. Now, the fact is that swath of the Great Plains that stretched from Canada to the Rio Grande was super productive for many years. There were several years of record rainfall early in the century, and because farmers used mules rather than tractors to plow, the land used for wheat was somewhat limited. But then the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo changed farming in Kansas. 
England declares war in Germany. Belgium invaded, screams the fake headline. And then the headline changes to war news tumbles security, stock exchange closed, wheat prices soar. Plow to the fence for national defense, farmers were told that would help win the Great War. Now the movie shows tractors in formation plowing the plains. If they look like tanks entering battle, well, so much the better. In fact, at one point, tanks and tractors are intercut. War, of course, needs soldiers, and soldiers must be fed. So the government was buying everything in sight. So much wheat is needed. The movie shows farmers plowing at night. Wheat will win the war. Plant wheat. Plant the cattle ranges. Plant Jamaican lots. Plant wheat. Wheat for the boys over there. Wheat for the Allies. Wheat for the British. Wheat for the Belgians. Wheat for the French. Wheat at any price. Wheat will win the war. After the Allies win the war, land speculators encouraged some of the returning doughboys and others to move to the plains and put even more land into production. Then the stock market crashed in 1929. And in short order, wheat prices plunged from $1.25 a bushel in 1929 to just 39 cents in 1932. So there's a confluence of events in the early 30s that lead the production of the plow that broke the plains. Land was being over-farmed. Much of that land should have never been plowed. The rain stops, and Franklin Roosevelt is in the White House. FDR creates something called the Resettlement Administration in 1935. Its mission was to move farmers off marginal land in the Dust Bowl region and help them move to other parts of the country. The government made this film to sell its plan to Congress and voters. It would make many other movies during the Depression, but this was the first. And it just didn't sit well with many in Kansas. Uh, the Dodge City Globe, Daily Globe, in June 1936, ran a, a piece just titled The Plow That Broke the Plains. Uh, but the, the editorial column that followed was pretty critical of uh, Rexford Tugwell, who, as it puts it here, to quote the paper, the theorist-in-chief uh, of the reclamation of the High Plains, uh, and talks about how he has turned the film, turned to the films to show the sins of the, in, of the High Plains farmer in, turn, in turning under the sod. And so he's very critical of the theorists, the New Deal, uh, the Eastern kind of elite, as they might look at them at the time. Many were critical of their left-wing politics, if you were particularly, if you were particularly conservative. And so he was very critical of what they were doing. So how much of this was specific about the Dust Bowl and this movie uh, or how much of the criticism do you think was just uh, hatred for uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal? I think by 1936, it's both. Um, they're s- skeptical, certainly. Uh, interestingly, Kansas later in the year would go for Roosevelt again. The voters would uh, uh, 
go two times for Roosevelt, which was very unusual in Kansas. So not everyone certainly was opposed to the New Deal, and it had uh, a lot of farm support because the AAA was very uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act, and its uh, production payments were very uh, popular. Uh, and by 1936, the Soil Conservation Service, uh, which was uh, a part of this whole debate, was becoming a popular program uh, that allowed farmers to get by, really, where to the point where a big percentage of their income during this period was from the government. So there was some continued support, but there was also some pretty bitter opposition to Roosevelt and the New Deal. So I think you probably see both uh, that being reflected in some of this opposition. You know, it occurs to me that uh, when we talk about uh, East Coast theorists, mm-hmm. eggheads, mm-hmm. we might uh, refer to them today, uh, it makes me sort of uh, uh, think about uh, global warming. So how much of global warming is climate that just changes, how much of it is man-made. And in 1936, how much of it is drought? We've always had droughts, uh, always had dust storms. And how, much, and how much of it is overproduction by the farmers in Kansas and other parts of the Plains states? Uh, it seems like a very similar argument to me. Yeah, I think there is some of that because you do see uh, at the, the film taking a position essentially that it was because of the overproduction that happened during World War One and the 1920s where par- farmers moved, more and more farmers moved onto the plains. They moved onto marginal lands. They plowed that land and then didn't maybe uh, use the right techniques or the techniques that they should have used to keep the, win- keep the land from blowing and then, or the soil from blowing. And then, of course, you put drought on top of that, which comes in the early 30s, and that's what is the is the emphasis there. Others would say, as you did, that drought is a reoccurring problem on the plains and that you're going to have dust storms and you're going to have some wind erosion uh, regardless of what you do as farmers. So there's a matter of, uh, of emphasis, I guess, on what is really the cause, how much of it's just cyclical, and how much of it is caused by human activity. The Dodge City Globe would conclude its editorial with this. If this is another sample of the New Deal, no wonder it's certain to be repudiated in November. It wasn't. FDR beat Kansas Governor Alf Landon in a landslide. William Lindsay White, son of William Allen, would write from Washington that the film was destined to rot slowly in the archives as an official congressional document. He wasn't wrong about that. The film is mostly rejected. Propaganda, many theater owners said. But the movie's failure at the box office didn't bury director Pere Lorenz. Lorenz was a new dealer through and through. He was often called FDR's filmmaker. Lorenz would go on to direct two other classic propaganda films for the government, The River, about the Tennessee Valley Authority, and The Fight for Life, about infant mortality in America. Lorenz died in 1992 at age 86, but his career as a documentarian isn't forgotten. Young filmmakers are trained at the Pere Lorenz Institute, at the FDR Library. Virgil Thompson, who wrote the score, grew up in Kansas City, but he spent his career in New York. He was a friend of Gertrude Stein and a peer of Aaron Copeland. Thompson would also work with Lorenz on the river. And in one more little connection to Kansas, that score was used in the 1983 movie The Day After, a film about nuclear war that was shot in Lawrence. 
Thompson died in 1989 at age 92. And that's Archiver. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Thanks to Daryl Garwood and Nancy Sherbert at the Kansas Historical Society for Research Help. Archiver is a co-production of Fountain City Frequency and Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer. You can see lots of stills from the movie and what the Dust Bowl looked like in Kansas at FountainCityFrequency.com. And hey, if you like Archiver, go ahead and leave a little review over there on iTunes. For my favorite Kansas historian, Virgil Dean, I'm Sam Zeff, and I'll see you on the next Archiver. Archiver.